This is Educational Segregation in Spain, Episode 3, The Causes. Welcome to the third episode of School Segregation in Spain, in the last episodes, we presented a legislative initiative to take up school segregation in the Basque country. We learn about their efforts to gather signatures to present in the Basque parliament. We also learn about the extent of school segregation in Spain and in the Basque country and how it compares to the US. We learn about the complex language polities of the Basque country and the history of Icastolas as beacons of Euskera, the Basque language. We also learn different modes of instruction in the Basque country with a model teaching in Euskera, a model teaching in a mix of Euskera and Spanish, and a mode teaching in Spanish alone. At the end of the last episode, the initiative presented by Tsubia Keraikis was gaining support. They were able to secure signatures and the support of three major political parties. In this episode, we delve deeper into the causes of school segregation in Spain. We examine the causes advanced by the ILP and we talk to the experts, to researchers, to see how they align or not with research findings. We conclude this episode comparing the causes of school segregation in Spain with the US. So stay with us for another great episode of School Segregation in Spain. The ILP initiative could not only present to the Basque country that school segregation existed or it was a problem. They also needed to propose an array of solutions and push for a political commitment from the parliament to adopt them. And to provide solutions, like any problem, one needs to understand the root causes. So the solutions address the roots that generates and perpetuates the problem, in this case, school segregation. The report produced by Pablo provided some leads to understand the cause of school segregation in the Basque country. So let's take a moment and let's review what we found in that report. Basque country has the largest percentage of students attending to escuelas concertadas, not just in Spain, but the entire Europe, only second to Belgium. Almost 50% of all students from early childhood to high school attend to escuela concertada. To give you a comparison, in the US, only 7% of students attend to a charter school, which are similar to escuelas concertadas. Around 10% of students in the public network are immigrant students. While at the Catholic concertadas, that number is 5.8%, so almost half of it. And the Icastolas, those schools that traditionally have taught the Basque language, those 2.5%, four times less than in the public network. Students receiving free lunch services account for 39% of the enrollment in Concertadas network, but only 61% in the public network. So we start finding some patterns here. So according to the ILP and based on the report, the problem, the major problem contributing to school segregation in the Basque country was the dual system of escuelas concertadas, including Incastolas and Catholic concertadas, and the traditional public system. There were mechanisms that concertadas implicitly or explicitly used 
to not enroll immigrant students and students from low socioeconomic status. So let's hear what Gonzalo Larusea said about this. determinado alumnado no va a acceder porque no, no va a pagar eso o no quiere pagar eso, prefiere ir a la escuela pública que es mucho más gratuita, ¿no? Entonces, so eh, bueno, pues ya está, todos contentos. To be completely free, they're subsidized by the government. They charge different kinds of fees, for example, for materials, uh, for they may charge their costs for the bus to get to the school or for lunch. And even Icastolas, those schools that have historically been a beacon for the Basque language have become cooperatives. And for a parent to be part of that cooperative, they need to pay a fee to become a member. So families who can pay or don't want to pay ended up going to the public school system, particularly families from low socioeconomic status or immigrant families. So is that it? Can we just attribute school segregation in Spain to the dual system of concertadas and public schools? It seems like a very simplistic answer to the very complex issue. Let's hear what the researchers have to say. First, Adrián Sancajo. The first factor of segregation is that the fact that we have a, a strong public system, but at the same time, a very strong and important a uh, private uh, number of private schools that are publicly funded. So this dual or this double uh, sector in education is an important driver of school segregation. Because uh, as you know, and maybe other people has explained you, um, these private subsidized schools have uh, important barriers of access in terms of student selection, but also economic barriers of access in terms of school fees. So for the, the evidence shows that this is the first factor to explain the, the segregation in terms of economic status, but also in terms of uh, immigration. So uh, this is one of the main challenges because the difference between the number, the, the level of enrollment of immigrant students in public schools and in private subsidized schools, it's very important. And um, the other big issue is the capacity of choice of families. Uh, we know that in those municipalities where the number of the percentage of immigrants is high and um, autochthonous um, families try to, to, to different, differentiate themselves to, 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 to obtain some level of social closure from these uh, immigrant students that are uh, perceived as a threat for the educational opportunities and the academic trajectory of the children. So we have these two phenomena that play a role at the same time because these families try to, to obtain some level of social closure and they have this sector of private subsidized schools offering them this kind of social closures by putting high levels or establishing high levels of school fees or even doing some kind of a student selection. So I will say that uh, these are the two main factors. The, on the one hand, is the private and the public sector that are playing an important role in the segregation dynamics in the Spanish education system, particularly in some regions and in some urban areas. And the fact that the immigrant population is uh, concentrated in some municipalities in some particular regions of Spain, and this creates the, the, the dynamic to, to avoid these immigrants from the autochthonous families. 
Mm. And it's, it's and it's not. I mean, you talk about the this 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 dual system, one of the major forces driven this segregation. But what about residential segregation? What about like communities coming and and locating where people like them are, right? Yeah, the fact is that the south of Europe. Uh, this is a common trend in many countries in Italy, in Greece, even. Uh, the, re the level of uh, residential segregation is lower than in other countries in, mm. in Europe, like Germany, even the northern countries of the UK. So we don't have a big problem of residential segregation. Uh, in fact, the levels of residential segregation of the big cities of in Spain, Barcelona, Madrid, Sevilla, Zaragoza, are much lower than big cities in the north of Europe. So this is not a problem. We know that the school segregation is much, much higher than the residential segregation. And here, uh, what plays a role is the capacity of a school type of families. Mm -hmm. So your residential decisions don't play a, an important uh, role in terms of the, the process of schooling of your children, because you have so many options of uh, enrollment. So I will say that compared to other countries, even in the US, I will say that mm -hmm. the residential segregation, of course, it's a factor that explains part of the school segregation, but it's not one of the most important ones. Adrián Sancajo reinforced the findings of ALP around the issue of the dual system with concertadas and the public network, but also talk about the capacity of families to exercise choice and how that creates inequality itself as well. And very interesting how residential segregation is not such a big factor in Spain as it is in the US. Now let's hear about Tony Vercher talking about issues of fees that uh, concertada schools charge, but also about some cultural barriers for immigrant families. Escuelas concertadas mm -hmm. that are how we call uh, charter schools in Spain charge fees to families and these uh, fees are a de facto mechanism of, of a school uh, segmentation and, and student selection. And, and do you have an idea of like the range of these fees? I mean, if they're so exclusionary, I imagine that there must be... Yeah, yeah. Actu actually, um, what is important to say is that um, in a way, many public schools in Spain also charge uh, fees uh, for extracurricular services through the parent association. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these fees also in the public sector can be very, very different. So in the private sector, what we observe is that they have gone a step further in charging for these extra fees. As I said, in some cases with the legitimate purpose to compensate for the under um, public under public funding. However, here the range is very broad, which also reflects the fact that there are uh, some of these escuelas concertadas that can have a public ethos and they charge the minimum possible to sustain the service. But we also have an, another extreme of um, escuelas concertadas that are behaving like elitist schools mm. and they can charge, let's say, perfectly, um, to say it in dollars, $800 a month oh, wow. for a student, plus the public subsidy. So this is, these are the two extremes. And then we have a lot of uh, schools in the middle 
that uh, maybe they could um, they could behave in a more socially inclusive way if the right um, uh, educational policies were in place. Mm. But are they allowed? Is there a cap of how much can they charge? Or yeah, the thing is that of course there is a cap, and actually um, gratuity in education is um, is declared by law, mm -hmm. so it's not possible for any school uh, that is part of the public system to charge fees. So what happens is that these fees, we know that they are de facto fees, but they are usually charged through volunteer donations to uh, private foundations that are attached to the school provider. So um, actually they are not vulnerating the law because it's not the school that is charging a fee, is a parallel foundation that is asking for voluntary donations to families. Oh, so okay. everybody knows and everybody plays this game and, and we know that they are de facto school fees, but legally they are not a school fees, uh, ergo they mm -hmm. are not, um, they are not uh, unfulfilling the law. Yeah, so it, it seemed that this, uh, at least this contribution to segregation, uh, like a market-driven contribution to uh, educational segregation, will segregate mostly on basis of class and income. Uh, does it have an effect on ethnic or language segregation? Absolutely, absolutely. And of course the fees is a key factor of uh, socioeconomic segregation and, and the fact that um, migrant population are usually overrepresented in the lowest um, socioeconomic status quintiles also makes that there is a sort of an endogeneity between uh, migrant and, and social class uh, segregation, but we have also today into account that the very nature of these uh, charter schools or escuelas concertadas, as we call them, as Catholic schools, also operates as a, as a cultural barrier for some uh, immigrant families that they come, for instance, from, from the north of Africa. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that definitely this, um, these public-private partnerships is a, is a key driver of school segregation, but not only for for socioeconomic uh, reasons. When you mean uh, kind of cultural barriers, uh, that's because they don't provide certain services that families will will need, or, or how? What yeah, you... yeah. Of course, the 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 adaptation of the school meals is not so well regulated as in the as in the public sector. There are also many symbols of the Catholic Church all around the school, even the the presence of religious people, um, they understand the delivery in the curriculum of religion as uh, indoctrination, not as understanding the history of religion. So these are these cultural barriers to, to the access of uh, non-Christian or non-Catholic population. Mm. And are there other concertadas that may be from other religions? Very little, very little. Uh, that's interesting. Usually the groups of um, the groups of immigrants, for instance, from some Arab countries uh, that are coming here, maybe they are from an elite, and, and maybe they they create their own uh, private schools or they join international schools, but are totally private. So 
maybe because they don't know how the mechanism works or in theory it would be illegal to, to apply for for um, for a PPP contract with with the state but yeah. the numbers are very low even for for the Jewish I would say that maybe there's only one uh, concertada in in the whole in the whole country. So far, Adrian Sancajo and Tony Verscher kind of reinforced and supported what the ILP had founded. But I don't think the story ends there. Lucas Gortazar also tells us about other factors that goes beyond the dual system between concertadas and public schools that also contribute to uh, school segregation. Other factors, you know, can be, for example, the the language, the language structure and the language barriers. Uh, uh, and it's not only about the historic, what we call historic regions like Basque Country, Catalonia or Galicia, but also regions like Madrid who have started a bilingual education program and uh, in English and Spanish and which, which has acted as a, you know, medium, middle class white, uh, middle class flight uh, type of uh, hmm. service. And you know has has made a lower class and immigrant population get get out of these of these schools. I think uh, concertadas, the existence of concertadas is is one of the drivers. But we have high segregation within the the, mm -hmm. the concertada system and within the public publicly provided or state state owned uh, schools. Uh, in fact, it's like twenty percent of the total segregation is explained by the existence of the concertadas network. The remaining eighty percent, according to you know the composition data from from PISA and other surveys, is what happens within within the networks. That doesn't. I mean, it's easy to, to focus on concertadas because it, it's easy to focus on on something mm -hmm. and on something you can look at on certain specific schools. It's easier to look at the group of schools where you start to work with. And uh, of course, there are always also vested interests in, in, you know, making the problem of segregation a problem, a matter of concertadas versus state-owned. And it's also there are interests by concertadas schools to make this kind of award so that they, you know, it, it's, they, they are less, they are held less accountable. You know, we are being attacked by state-owned schools. Uh, you know, we are under risk, and then you know that generates a, a lot, a whole new discussion. That being said, there. There is, you know, clear knowledge of what are the mechanisms that the charter schools uh, have to, to to segregate or to or they, or they give parents to to segregate themselves. Uh, and of course, they were well identified by uh, by the legislative legislative proposal. And I think, of course, uh, you know, addressing them would be of great help, but it wouldn't be solving all the issue, or perhaps it would be creating other other. Other problems. I think it's good to include the concertadas as a key actor in the discussion, but if we start blame games, we probably won't be able to to you know move move uh, strong towards uh, you know uh, a better a better future. Hmm. Xavier Bonal also talk about within network segregation. One of the added things that we have recently, which is worrying, 
is that what is happening is that, as I mentioned, the level of public demand has increased very much, but we have middle classes that are demanding public schools, high quality public schools, and we have higher and higher levels of segregation within the public system, mm. which is highly significant. And then that's interesting because you don't have any more like one voice for the public system and one voice for the private. Mm -hmm. Within each sector, you start having like very, very different voices and you have uh, middle classes actually asking for more schools of certain type and uh, for um, uh, I, I don't I don't agree to go to this public school I want to go to a public school but uh, which is innovative and with uh, specific school ethos yeah. so asking for diversity within the public system which increases segregation within the public system hmm. very much and this is a, a more recent we are talking that we don't have anymore a double network of schools and we have a triple network of schools because public schools themselves are being segregated and very much uh, differentiated. So let's take a pause and summarize and digest what we learned from talking to the researchers. First, we can say that in, in a sense and to an extent, the ILP was right. The dual system contributes to uh, school segregation in Spain. And that is because, not just because the fees, as Gonzalo was saying, but also about cultural barriers that Tony Vercher pointed to in our interview. Residential segregation seems to not play a big role in school segregation in Spain. But what is interesting, that language politics do, as Lucas Cortázar was telling us, uh, language can be a sorting mechanism for students not just in terms of historical language, like the Basque language, the Catalan, or the historical language in Galicia, but also, for example, in Madrid, with schools that wants to include English as a bilingual instruction. And more important and interesting, what we start seeing in Spain is segregation within networks, as even within the public system, there is also school segregation, as there is a diversification of options for families that contributes to uh, middle-class families choosing particular kinds of schools. So in regards of language models of instruction as being a, a contributor to segregation, let me tell you a little uh, personal example. Uh, I, when I arrived here to uh, the Basque country, I had I had, I still have them, two children, uh, one that at that time was three, year old, three years old and the other one who was six. The one who was three-year-old, we started, we started actually both in Modelo A, which is just in Spanish, because we want them to, to learn Spanish, and we were a little concerned about being trying to learn Spanish at the same time to learn Euskera, which is actually a very difficult language to, to learn. Uh, but in the second year, we, we, we grabbed some courage and we uh, moved our youngest one uh, that was entering kindergarten to the Modelo de Chassis in Euskera because we knew she, we saw that she had a very strong already uh, um, Castellano, Spanish language. But when we were older one, we decided to know and keep her in Modelo A, which is just in Spanish. And he's still going just in Spanish. He's in right now in third grade. 
Uh, and we noticed a huge difference between the classrooms. The Modelo D, which is in Euskera, it's mostly uh, Basque families and uh, fami some families from Spain who still decided to uh, put the kids in, 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 in the Basque instruction language because they're, they're having long-term plans to stay here. But in my uh, in my third uh, my third grader classroom, which is the Modelo A, just in Spanish, there are only only immigrant families who go to that uh, classroom. So I can start seeing some of the uh, um, things that uh, the researchers were saying about language uh, language as a form of segregation. But language politics is so sensitive here in the Basque country that, as you'll see uh, in the last episode, we'll have a, a role to play. In, in the final decision about the ILP. But now I think we should turn to think about how this compares to the causes of school segregation in the United States. When comparing the causes of school segregation in Spain and the United States, we can find some stark differences, but also some commonalities. Residential segregation in the US play a historically important, significant role in school segregation. And this residential segregation is not due to natural classes, such as people choosing where to live, but it has been produced by state-sanctioned policies such as redlining practices, loan practices, zoning, public housing, how public housing was arranged, Jim Crow laws, as well as private practices, from blockbusting strategies from real estate agents to whites using racially restricted covenants and violence to exclude blacks and other minoritized communities from white areas. And more recently, the white flight model has been also one of the main explanations for school segregations, where whites flight or move away from areas that are increasingly becoming diverse. Over time, of course, these housing practices, these housing arrangements has had an impact on the cost of living also, sorting families, not just in terms of race, but also in socioeconomic status. And despite that in 1954, Brown versus Board of Education declared school segregation illegal, there was a huge resistance at the local, at the national level, with huge backlashing to efforts to desegregate schools. And despite some widespread success in the 1970s and 80s, desegregation completely stalled in the 1990s. So Spain does not share this unfortunate history of racism that we see in the United States. Let me clarify, I'm not saying that there is no racism in Spain. That is a much longer discussion for another podcast. What I'm saying is that racism did not shape the residential arrangements in Spain as it did in the US, and therefore did not have such a big impact in school segregation. Fund is also an interesting issue to discuss here, because in the US, a large portion of school district funding comes from property taxes, creating huge funding inequities marked by racial lines. In Spain, funding is more centralized, and does not depend on property taxes, which results in a more equitable way to distribute funding even to those schools who are segregated. And then in the 1990s, in the US, there has been an emphasis on school choice with an expansion and diversification of public school options, including charter schools, selective enrollment schools, speciality schools like our focus schools, which has contributed to education segregation. 
And I think here we can draw some parallels for with which we have been learning in Spain. First, we see in both places that school choice serve as a mechanism for further integration in different ways. First, not all families are able to obtain important information of schools or know how to search for information in a school uh, or even process that information, making sense of it about, for example, school quality. Information about school is also generally transmitted and evaluated through social networks with R racially and socioeconomically segregated as well, which contributes to differential access to schools. Second, families are not equally able to choose all possible schools. Families different have different resources that they need to be able to navigate when they think about school options, as well as constraints like a transportation, for example. And finally, and we'll see this again both in Spain and the US, schools have been not been welcoming to all students. There are a variety of ways in, school, in which schools shapes their student enrollment, for example, where they selectively market to some parents and not to others, or when they charge fees, as in the case of Spain, where they uh, try to promote a particular culture like Catholic schools or even in Castolas, as we have reviewed in this podcast. And then, very important, families, particularly middle-class families from dominant culture, like white families in the US or Spanish-born or Basque-born, uh, families in the in in the Basque country in Spain, they need to want to send their children with other children whose families are vastly different from themselves, and that and that is an obstacle that also contributes to systemic racism and classism that shapes school segregation. We must note here and put a word of caution when we compare charter schools and escuelas concertadas. Escuelas concertadas have a much longer and different history than charter schools, as we review in episode one, and the forms of regulations evidenced in escuelas concertadas and charter schools are different. For instance, at the outset of charter school movement in the US, opponents of charter schools fear that charter schools will become heavens for white flights, moving white students out of the public school system. However, this has not occurred, but the opposite has happened. White flight is not the primary reason for school segregation, at least in regards to charter schools. The prevailing trend is for non-dominant students, particularly Blacks and Latinas, to self-segregate into charter schools. As a result, Black students, Latinx students in particular, in charter schools, attempt to more intensively segregated schools than the, their peers in traditional public schools. In Spain, escuelas concertadas act differently. They act mostly as a vehicle from Spanish families or Basque families, middle-class families, to send their children with similar kids, uh, with kids from with similar families that their own. And to also, in some cases, to inculcate religious values and to uh, self-segregate in uh, concertada schools. But let's remember also that as we learn in this episode, there is a huge diversification also within the public system, causing similar forms of segregation. So it is important that we keep in mind as we move to the next episodes, all these cases that we have reviewed and how we can compare them with the US. 
because in the next episode, we will begin to talk about solutions and we'll see what happened when Sabine presented in the Basque Parliament. In the next and final episode, we delve deeper into the solutions proposed by the ILP and we see how they compare to the solutions proposed from research and also with the solutions that have been tried in the US. We also found out what happened after Sabine presented at the parliament. The Basque parliament take up the issue and really advance some serious solutions to deal with school segregation in the Basque country. This and much more in our final episode of school segregation in Spain. This resource was brought to you by the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to our publications, click on the subscribe to our publications link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center, is funded by the United States Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout our 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This product and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by an, any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank the Indiana University School of Education Indianapolis at IEPY, as well as Executive Director Dr. Kathleen Quintorius, Director of Operations Dr. Sina Skelton, and Associate Director Dr. Tiffany Kaiser for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.